you know, like people say, this is the, the era of quitting right now, right? And, and, and it's true and, and it indicates that you have to change the, the deal between employer and employed. And I think we need to do that in firefighting and wildland firefighting before. And now it's even more urgent and both from a, what we need people to do and also like how to keep people and, and keep them happy and fulfilled. They're gonna do their jobs better if they are. Hey folks, welcome to Life with Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and we are here today with the second part of our conversation with Michael Wara. Michael and I talked quite a bit about the infrastructure bill in our last episode, or our last, the first part of our conversation, I guess. Uh, and this part of our conversation, we kind of dive into or kind of skim the surface rather of prescribed fire liability, of fire liability kind of in general, air quality impacts, and then uh, a really important and interesting part of the conversation was kind of towards the end, we talked a lot about workforce retention and um, how we can build a more sustainable wildland fire, but also prescribed fire workforce that doesn't require, you know, being away from home for two weeks at a time and really not being able to see your kids all summer and really just this toxic work-life balance in general, the things that we uh, especially people who have worked on the ground in fire suppression, the things that we accept as normal are pretty wild, actually. And they really contribute to a lack of retention. We all know this, especially those that have worked on the ground. But Michael brings this uh, really articulate uh, perspective to that conversation. And so I would urge you guys to stick around for the end of the episode. And just as a really quick reminder for those who maybe didn't listen to the first episode with Michael, um, I would recommend it. We talked quite a bit about the uh, infrastructure bill and kind of the implications of that and what its potential downfalls are. Uh, but yeah, for those who didn't listen to that first episode, Michael Wara is a lawyer and a scholar, and he's focused mostly on climate and energy policy. And he works for Stanford at the um, Woods Institute for the Environment, as well as the director of the climate and energy policy program. Um, he is really engaged with all of like the sort of icky feeling things. I feel like they're icky feeling or messy feeling. Um, the laws, the regulations, the policies, uh, the things that just really feel scary to me as a non-lawyer. So we will talk a little bit more about that stuff uh, with Michael in this episode. And without further ado, let's get into it. Here's Michael Wara with Life with Fire. We appreciate you listening and hope you enjoy this episode. I do think that part of the challenge is the way that, unfortunately, we have articulated the causes of wildland fire, you know, in terms of like not one more spark, that the, the legal frameworks around this that, that determine who is financially responsible when things go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, are driven by ignition as opposed to by consequence or hazard or risk. And that's kind of unusual. Like, you know, in most areas, like if, if there was a, if there was a, like a flood and well, let's pick a real example. Let's just say there was a hurricane and it came ashore um, and there were levees built around a city that was built below sea level, right? Because, you know, and those levees failed because they'd been poorly maintained. Would it be the hurricane's fault 
or the levy's fault or both, right? Both. And the levies would bear substantial responsibility. The levies didn't start the hurricane, but they were built to manage it and failed to do so, right? And, and so why it is that we treat fire in this very unique, I mean, unique way, wildland fire, um, I think is, you know, even, even, in, even in urban fires, right? If, if there's a failure, if there's an ignition and someone has like disconnected their smoke detectors, um, they may be liable because they have, they have done things that um, increase the risk or increase the consequence of what might occur after an ignition. And I think if we could move in that direction, a lot of things start to look really logical, like ecological fire management that, that, um, that don't seem, seem expensive and unnecessary today for, for average people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's remarkable where I live to see the amount of investment that's occurring in order to maintain insurability and to maintain, um, you know, or, or just like when people want to sell properties, it's harder to sell properties that aren't, don't have well-maintained defensible space at this point because people are nervous about getting into contract and not being able to insure the property. And we just need to have a, that's, that's like the beginning of something, but mm -hmm. it's not the holistic transformation that we ultimately need. Cause you know, the other thing I is, um, at least I am moving way beyond the, the belief. I think, I, I think when I started working on this issue, I was sort of like, well, we need community level defense. Like we need shaded fuel breaks. We need, um, you know, maybe we need to burn to the ridge top. Um, and like, that would be, a, I mean, I still think that would be amazing. If I could look up at my ridges that I, I'm looking up at a ridge right now, and if I could look up there and know that there've been, you know, recent prescribed fire, um, and that there was a plan to repeat the treatment, I would feel much safer as a homeowner. Mm -hmm. But, but the, I think in California, we're getting to the point where we just need to treat the entire landscape, you know, and, and, and if we construct that shaded fuel break, it's mostly so that we can light fires on the other side of it, not because we expect it to stop a fire coming at us. Mm -hmm. And so and, and I think many Californians are getting to that point with this issue. People, I interact with a lot of people in the venture community because I work in clean tech, like the other part of what I do. And all the venture capital people are starting to talk about living in the Bay Area the way people used to talk about living in Beijing in the two, early 2000s. You know, not a place you'd really want to go with your family. You think about the long-term health consequences of it because you're going to be inhaling all this air pollution, you, you know, except in, Cal in, in the Bay Area, you're going to spend $2 million on like a teardown 1500 square foot house on a tiny lot and struggle to afford anything else. Um, with the idea that you can go hiking and mountain biking on your favorite trails on the weekend, only you can't because it's smoky. Um, and it may not be safe to be pregnant where you live. I mean, you know, like, I don't know, I think, I think there's a, 
there is a real crisis in California. I, I hope that it doesn't spread to other states at, at the same in the same way, but I'm not optimistic. I mean, I think if you look at the evolution of the key metrics, like the things that we can understand may be driving the intensification of fire, like vapor pressure deficit and things like that. Um, the trends are not positive. So we need to get, we, we can, and we need to get ahead of it. It's doable. We can do this. It's not that much. It's, it's not even that much money in the end. It's just a lot of money for the forest service. So you're optimistic though. That felt really, really optimistic. Yeah, I, I actually am. I, I think, and you know, part of the reason that I focus so much on air quality is I think my theory of change is that this discussion around forest health, forest ecology has been too much about people that live and work near the forest. And the problem with that approach is there aren't that many people. But as soon as you say to LA, where 25 million people live, right, in the, in the LA region, hey, you can't go outside. It's not safe. It's not, it's maybe not safe to be pregnant unless you have $2,000 worth of air filtration in your house, right? And most people don't have $400 in their bank account. Um, as soon as you start to say that to, to, to the places where lots of people live, that changes the politics of this issue and it changes the amounts of money that are reasonable to spend. And so my hope would be that we can make those connections between wildfire and smoke and make the case that there are things that we can do to, to manage the forest better, to have less catastrophic fire seasons, um, and so less downstream impacts, and that that can motivate the spending. Because the other thing is that the kinds of money, the amounts of money we need are not that much in the context of implementing other kinds of air pollution rules. Right? Like it costs a lot of money to put scrubbers on coal-fired power plants. It costs a lot of money to put catalytic converters on vehicles or improve vehicle fuel efficiency. Many billions of dollars are spent to try to improve those types of impacts on the air that we breathe. We're not used to having that, that kind of money in the forest sector. You know, a few hundred million dollars sounds like a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but the situation changes once you're talking about exposing 100 million people, right? The population of the West to unacceptable air pollution harms. And this really is a West-wide issue, right? Like I was talking to people from Salt Lake who are in the air pollution community there. And they were saying that they think that the um, ozone non-attainment issues in Salt Lake this summer were largely a function of um, the the wildfires in california the dixie fire and the calder fire mm -hmm. and so this really is a regional problem and 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 i think we have a history of in the air context of rolling up our sleeves investing money and making progress and i want to transfer that to the fire regime if possible Getting 
you know, there was $20 million set aside for a wildfire claims fund and we're working on legislation to actually implement that um, to make it a real thing that someone could, you know, if they had a bill from a prescribed fire because Cal Fire showed up, they could actually send the bill somewhere and get it paid. Um, but, you know, I think the, that's part of the larger picture changing changing the liability regimes around prescribed fire in the West is part of the larger project of flipping the script mm -hmm. and of making it, making good fire uh, something that people welcome, normal people. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, you know, we make, every, I, the one thing I've really learned with fire is that as long as we keep making progress every year, um, I, I can feel good about it. It's hard because it feels like we're running on a treadmill and maybe the treadmill's running a little faster than we're running. Like we're going to fall off the back. Um, but yeah, I see, I see really positive change in California, even over the last few years, like being able to sit with Cal fire leadership and hear them talk now versus what they used to say is a remarkable turnabout. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, and, and, and that is super important because those are the people that the policymakers know because they talk to them when their communities are on fire. And so it's, uh, yeah, I see change happening. It just takes time. Um, and hopefully we can have fewer Greenvilles and paradises while the change is happening. That's the thing, I, you know, I, it being a welfare commissioner, you know, we, we had meetings all over the state in places that had been really impacted by fire. So we met in Redding, we met in Santa Rosa, we met in Ventura, and it's just heartbreaking to see the impacts on communities, to imagine your kids as the ones that have PTSD when they smell smoke in the air. Um, and I just want, I want a future where fewer kids have that response, where kids smell smoke in the air and they think, oh, maybe there's a prescribed fire. Cool. It's going to be so great to go hike on that trail after and see what it looks like and see it spring back to life. Um, and we're not there, but I, I hope that we'll get there. I think I'm optimistic that we will. Mm -hmm. I am curious, could you just give us like, can you give us a rundown of kind of your work in that realm? And also the, like a 101 on like the liability conversation. Is that possible? Limited to prescribed fire or yes. more broadly? Yes, prescribed okay. fire liabilities, yeah. Okay, yeah, well, so, you know, I got interested in this issue because I did a lot of work related to insurance and liability with respect to utilities. And so I knew, I know the, ins the commercial ins insurance issues and how difficult wildfire related commercial insurance has become um, to get and how expensive it's gotten. It's, it's gotten to the point where it's like, you can buy a dollar of insurance for a dollar plus whatever it costs the lawyers to like write up the contract. Um, and so it made a lot of sense when I learned from, uh, the Good Fire Report, and also from Lenya Quinn Davidson, that this was a huge barrier. Mm -hmm. And looking around the country, um, 
interacting with the folks at Tall Timbers as well, who you know burn a lot in Florida, um, really learned about the underlying liability regime and said, okay, we could make that change here, right? Like if we're serious about having prescribed burn associations and private actors burning that don't have you know indemnification from the state, then we got to make some changes. And the what's interesting about it to me, or what's what's great about it is that it's a it's totally a bipartisan issue. This is something where everybody comes together. The Cattlemen's Association, the PBAs from like, you know, Santa Cruz and where I live in Marin are united in trying to push change. And so um, it's it's been, you know, it interacts with the insurance. The, the, the complexity comes because of the interaction with the home insurance situation in California, which is fragile, um, to put it mildly. And, um, and, and that's where I've also been able to be helpful because I really, I have a history of positive interaction with those folks because of utility wildfires. And we work together on a lot of hard things. We don't always agree, but we respect each other and and we try to figure things out, figure out solutions. And so that was really what was really what was helpful um, in changing the liability frame around prescribed fire last year. And we made, you know, I wouldn't say we made radical change, but we made substantial change. Um, and, and change that I think will make burn bosses less nervous. Um, the the next step though is figuring out a way it's it's one thing to make it less likely that you will face a liability that's what changing the liability regime does it's another thing to create some sort of a substitute for insurance which is no longer available and that's the claims fund and so i think it's really important that we create a model in California that maybe could be copied in other states, you know, like maybe there could be an Oregon claims fund or a Washington claims fund or a Nevada claims fund as well. Um, but to create a model for how to fill this gap, because you just cannot expect, you know, people to who, who are getting paid nothing or maybe just a little bit to go out on the weekend and put their entire personal financial well-being on the line. Mm -hmm. um, that's just not, you know, some people might do that. The truly passionate might do that, but we got to mainstream this. If we're successful, it's everyone's doing this. It's not just a few. And there are successful, maybe even successful businesses whose job is showing up at land trusts and doing prescribed fire for them. Um, and so we need a model that works for not just the, the people that are passionate advocates of prescribed fire. So the claims fund is the thing to be done this session. I think people should keep an eye on that if they're interested in, in these issues. And, and I think, I mean, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. And, and I guess I, I also think it's increasingly important because every time I interact with you know, the other, the alternative to private prescribed fire is firefighting agencies doing it in the off season. Mm -hmm. But when I talk to Cal Fire 
folks, anyway, the agency that would mostly be doing this on private lands in California, they, they, they do not need more to do. They are working so hard. Their forces are, you know, they need time to do all the things that I've learned about on your show, like heal in the off season, not just physically, but also mentally mm -hmm. and reconnect with their families. It breaks my heart. I, I was at a, I got vaccinated at the Oakland Coliseum for COVID back in March because I was teaching. And um, there's a Cal Fire guy vaccinating me. And I'm like, wait, man, shouldn't you be like back at the station hanging out with your family? Like, what are you doing? in probably staying in some crappy motel in Oakland. You know, and these people are, they are working so hard, especially the ones, you know, from the, from the Cal Fire units that are particularly exposed. And so I, I just think it's not realistic to think, oh, we're going to give them this other gigantic job. Um, and they'll, they'll be able to do both for the same pay. Um, it just, it just doesn't seem fair. Absolutely not. <laughs> We've got a numbers problem, I think, with this prescribed fire thing. <laughs> Cause yeah, yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard, I've read stories of people who are advocating for a year round fire workforce. And, you know, I've like dabbled in thinking that that's a good idea, but if you work summer suppression season, you are cashed out. Like, yeah. I just don't see that being feasible in any way. If you're if you're like making any sort, if you're working meaningfully during the suppression season, you do not want to be doing prescribed fire throughout the winter, well, um, unless you're really, really passionate about fire and you yeah. don't have a family. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's, 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 I mean, it also goes to the way that the suppression workforce works with like 14 day on cycles mm -hmm. is just not compatible with a two career family, you know, I, I like, I, I, I couldn't, we couldn't do it. I'm the primary breadwinner in our house. My wife also works, takes a larger role in raising our children, but I don't, I don't know how firefighters do this unless they have some sort of like a, a very traditional situation. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, well, okay, what does that mean? Do you have like, to me, that immediately starts to sound, maybe smell misogynist. Um, and I think the way we create healthy, you know, and, and we wanna bring more women, like there's 50, whatever, 1% of the people that could potentially be firefighters, look at that and they're like, no. Yeah. Yes, oh my so, God. So, and, and then God forbid you want to have kids. Impossible. Right? Like, I, I just, I, I, I think there's a huge, so, so to me, I look at a fire steward, right? Community fire stewards to borrow. I, I don't know if Sasha Berlman used that exact term on your show, but like we could have a force of people who have good jobs in their community working with fire. Maybe they were wildland firefighters for a few years when they were young. And then they can kind of retire maybe from that and, and, and take up this new role mm -hmm. and have really great, meaningful work mm -hmm. in a place where they're home at mostly at five o'clock to or six o'clock to have dinner with their family and prepare dinner for their family and make sure their kids get their homework done. And that could be men and women. 
And, and I, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole opportunity there that to, to grow the workforce, to grow who might be interested in a career in fire. Um, I hope we can create. You are speaking. This is just, this is like igniting a story idea actually right now. Cause I've always wondered, you know, why I've had people reach out to me from the forest service asking why uh, they, why I think there are retention issues. And I have so many answers to that. Um, but I've never thought about like how part of the solution could genuinely be like making a workforce, making a work life style more compatible with having children. Like that's why women don't stay in this job. And that's why I have no female friends who have an intention of making this a career. Well, and, and you know what else? Like that's also, I, I have to think that that is also why a lot of men do not stay in that job. I'll mm -hmm. tell you what, I wouldn't want to be a wildland firefighter because I want to be with my kids. Like I don't want to be gone six months a year or yep. whatever the fire season is where you, you know, where you happen to be, but it sure seems like it's about six months a year at this point. It is. And no way. Yeah. And I think it would be, it, it creates all these problems. Like how does the home work when you get home? Right. And then you're all of a sudden in your partner's business, who's been raising the kids basically on uh -huh. their own the whole time. And then you show up and you're like, Hey, let's do it different. That's like a recipe for marital conflict. I, I can't imagine. I, you know, I, I, I just, it doesn't, we have to normalize a lifestyle that actually makes sense for people who aren't 22. Right. And that's like the entire, like, like hotshot crew workforces is like 18 to 26 year olds. And then, you know, sometimes you do get those folks that go up into squad boss and, and supervisory positions, but I mean, it's so few and far between. And a lot of those people just get sucked into like the, the hotshot, like operational realm. They don't end up moving into anything else. I feel like they like, you know, their, their availability, their training opportunities sort of stagnate at a certain point and they don't get to progress at all. You know, I just like, it, it's yeah. so frustrating. And it's yeah. so frustrating my experiences of working with people who had babies in May on a hotshot crew. And then they didn't see that baby until September or October, like genuinely. Yeah. No way. Spent like no four way. days with their newborn. Yeah. Over That's... the course of four months. It's insane. <laughs> well, and yeah, don't get me started. I, I just think there's the, the idea that you're going to pay someone what we can reasonably pay a firefighter and expect out of them and expect to retain them is ridiculous. You're not. And so it's not a shock that retention is a huge issue and that there's this huge like skills drain. Um, and we need more skilled people. So we got to change, you know, like people say, this is the, the era of quitting right now. Right. And, and, and it's true. And, and it indicates that you have to change the, the deal between employer and employed. And I think we need to do that in firefighting and wildland firefighting before and now it's even more urgent and both from a, what we need people to do and also like how to keep people and, and keep them happy and fulfilled. Mm -hmm. They're gonna do their jobs better if they are. Um, it's, yeah, anyway, yeah. The, there's this book by, she was the head, she, she worked for Hillary Clinton when she was a, Clinton was a secretary of state. And, it, and she was a professor before that. And then, and, and she said, I thought I worked hard when I was a professor, but I had no idea what it was like to have a job where you're just expected to be available all the time um, and how hard that is on her family. 
And she, her perspective about it was that the, the successful path forward is not to make better accommodations for women. It's to change the way the men are expected to work so that everybody has to work that way, right? You just change the basic expectations. Or you say, this is a one career family kind of job and you compensate it as if it is. But like, that's not gonna happen. And I mean, I, I, I don't see that happening um, in fire. So um, anyway, we'll see. It's yeah. a process, right? I think it's, I think they're changing. You know, it was really great to see what was in the infrastructure bill. Totally. All right, folks, that's what we've got for you today. Huge thank you to Michael Wara for coming on the show. And I also want to thank everyone that supported our Patreon and bought a Life with Fire calendar over the last few weeks. We still have a few of those calendars left. So if you're interested, uh, let me know. You can email us at lifewithfirepodcast at gmail.com and we can get you hooked up with one. Um, otherwise, we would love it if you would review the podcast or even just subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already or potentially share it with somebody who you think might like it. So that's what we've got for you today. Thank you, as always, for listening and supporting Life with Fire. We appreciate it immensely. And I think that's all I've got for you. So thanks again for listening, and we will catch you on the next one.